0: Please stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. This morning, our sermon text is Luke 2.21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's Word. Well, I hope you'll keep your, your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2 while we pray. Ask the Lord to move among us this morning. Father, it is a gift to be together today, to have the reasons to celebrate that we have. We thank you this Christmas Eve for the hope that came into the world two millennia ago and for the work that he did to perfectly satisfy the law to become our substitute, to win us salvation, and to bring us into your kingdom. Lord, we pray in his name this morning and ask that you would do your work in our midst. Amen. When a young man from England heard God's call to move to the other side of the world and preach the gospel in China, he was thrilled at the adventure that was before him. When he arrived in Shanghai, he was excited to get to work But the reality of his new situation confronted him suddenly. When Hudson Taylor stepped off the boat, he felt like he had landed in another world. He worked hard over the next several years to master three local languages, and he eventually knew one of them so well that he was able to produce a translation of the New Testament. But even after all of that work, he had spent years learning languages and trying to reach his new neighbors and friends. He wasn't reaching people like he thought that he would. So he decided to do something drastic, something that no one else had done before. He bought new clothes in the local style. He grew his hair out, and he braided it in the same way that the men of the city did. And he moved from the part of Shanghai, where all the English expats lived, to a new neighborhood. And in his new neighborhood, he was the only non-Chinese resident. For Hudson Taylor... All of this made sense. In order to reach his neighbors in China, he needed to enter their world. He realized that his English clothes made people treat him with suspicion, so he got rid of them. He understood that his short haircut, even though it was considered proper back home, made him seem strange to the Chinese people that he hoped to become friends with. He knew that if he continued to live in the English enclave in Shanghai, he would always be an outsider and never someone who could really be trusted. He understood what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 when he explained that he accommodated himself to the people he was trying to reach, whether they were Jewish or not, whether they were subject to the Mosaic law or not, whether they were rich or poor or well-connected or not. He said, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul knew that the gospel speaks to every culture, every situation, every society, every family dynamic, every people, tribe, and tongue on the planet. And the reason that the gospel meets people where they are is because it begins with a Savior who meets people where they are. So Paul was only following in the footsteps of Christ. He could adapt his presentation of the gospel to make it more comprehensible to the people that he was trying to reach without compromising the integrity of the gospel message itself. All of these things were obvious to Hudson Taylor, but not to the other English people around him. His biographer explains that rumors of his conversion to Chinese dress preceded him. Merchants laughed in his face. Gossip buzzed. Women were horrified. Dandy young clerks curled their lips. Men cracked obscene jokes. The old hands calls it, called it a disgrace because the fellow had demeaned himself in front of the natives and harmed British prestige. His fellow missionaries thought that he was losing it. Even his own parents were disappointed in him. Across the board, they thought that he had implied the surrender of the superiority of Western ways. But Hudson Taylor knew that's what the gospel is all about. One who abandoned superiority to take the form of a servant, who left his rightful place behind in order to identify with the people that he was coming to save. So like Hudson Taylor and like Paul before him, or so Hudson Taylor rather, like Paul before him and Christ before them both, did the unthinkable, and he identified with the people that he loved and longed to see receive the gospel. Ultimately, his strategy was effective. We know throughout his ministry, countless people came to Saving Faith, and the church in China was firmly established, But it was costly to Hudson Taylor. He felt the sting of rejection and mockery from fellow missionaries and even from his own family. But that didn't surprise him. None of it did. He knew that he would be laughed at and shamed by other people. But his love for the people of China was greater than his ego. And that was an echo of a far greater love a love that compelled Jesus to step into the world, to take on the flesh of his people to take on the fullness of humanity, to identify with us in order to become our Savior. It was love that would drive him ultimately to the cross. And even though here in Luke two twenty one, the cross is so far off, it is so distant on the horizon, but even though it is so far away, there is a glimpse of the extent of his love and how it will lead him to the cross and to our salvation. It's a verse that seems unimportant, if we're honest, something we barely notice in a chapter that is filled with famous and heartwarming scenes of mangers and shepherds and a newborn baby whose coming is like light into a dark place. But this verse, Luke 2.21, helps us understand why he arrived in the world in just this way. Not as a warrior, not as an aristocrat. Not as a person of influence or status, but as a baby. And I was talking with Jess about the sermon earlier this week. I said, I'm preaching from the verse about Jesus' circumcision this week. And she said, I'm sorry, you're doing what on Christmas Eve? <laughs> and uh, maybe you are too. Uh, but I, I'll tell you what I told her. Please trust me, bear with me. I'm going somewhere with this. So far this Advent season, we've studied through the well-known and beloved passage in Luke's Gospel that describes Jesus' birth. His parents, Mary and Joseph, were compelled by Caesar Augustus to travel from their home in Nazareth to Bethlehem, where she gives birth in a stable because there is no room for them in the inn. Afterward, while some shepherds are tending their flocks nearby, an angelic host appeared and announced good news of great joy for all the world. Because Christ the Lord had been born. So they rush to see the child with the angels that the angels had told them about, and they leave in wonder with praise and joy in their hearts. That's the classic Christmas scene, isn't it? At my house, we have three nativity sets set up in various places, and all of them depict that first Christmas night Jesus in a manger, Mary and Joseph looking down at him with smiles in their faces shepherds and wise men who have come to worship and some barnyard animals scattered in there. There are countless songs about that picturesque moment, but to my knowledge, there are no songs about the verse that comes next. This scene in verse 21 is not a part of any Christmas movies. Maybe that's for the best. But it sheds light on everything that's come before. It helps us understand that classic Christmas scene Because it is the first step that Jesus takes on a path that will lead him to the cross. Two things happen in this verse. First, Jesus is circumcised. And then, secondly, he is officially given his name. Both are ceremonial rites of passage. Important moments in the lives of Jewish families in the first century. And these two events are significant in Luke's gospel because they are the moment when Jesus identifies with us and then Jesus identifies himself, even as a baby. Who at this point is not doing much, but eating and sleeping. We are reminded here in Luke two twenty one that all of this is happening according to God's plan. According to what he has ordained will take place. All of it is as Jesus himself designed it to be before he entered this world. Luke tells us that at the end of eight days, Jesus was circumcised. That's standard practice. The Mosaic law made clear that this is exactly what parents were supposed to do for their baby boys. It was first commanded way back in Genesis 17 when God is establishing a relationship with and a covenant with a man named Abraham. At that point, when God first arrived in Abraham's life, He was an idol-worshipping pagan, just like everyone else on earth, but God plucked him from among all people and called him by name, and he made Abraham a promise that through this one man's family, the whole world would be blessed. The problem was that Abraham had no children. At this point, he and his wife are too old to have any children. But God's promise remains, and he even reaffirms it. He doubles down on it multiple times. He recommits to what he has said he will do, even though with each passing day, Abraham and his wife are getting older and older, and it seems more and more impossible for God to keep his promise. But God knows his plans for Abraham, for his wife Sarah, and for the family that they don't have yet, and so he begins giving them instructions about how they are to raise the child that doesn't exist yet. Specifically, that baby boys are to be circumcised the eighth day after they are born. In fact, that's the one thing that Abraham is expected to do. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties to uphold certain responsibilities. Other ancient covenants, there are many, many, many of them, they're all alike. I commit to do such and such for you, and in exchange, you are committing to do such and such for me. Often covenants in the ancient world were sealed with the sacrifice of animals as a way to say, may I be destroyed like these animals if I violate my covenant promises to you. Each side needed to be able to trust the other because each side needed something from the other. But in the covenant that God establishes with Abraham, He says, I will bless you, I will give you a family, I will give your family land to live in, And through your family, I will bless the whole world. And the one thing that Abraham has to do in this covenant arrangement here in Genesis 17 is circumcise his sons. That's a pretty lopsided partnership, for sure. On God's part, generational promise that results in good for all of humanity. On Abraham's part, a relatively minor medical procedure for baby boys. Unlike other ancient covenants, this one put all the pledges and constrictions on one party and almost nothing on the other. It's pretty lopsided. But in addition to its unevenness, we can admit it's also a pretty bizarre thing for God to demand. Typically, a covenant promise was matched by an equally substantial promise from the other party involved So Abraham hears God's promises. He hears all these things that God is going to do, and he probably thought, okay, God says that he's going to bless the entire world through a family that he's going to give me. That's pretty big. So this is going to cost me. But God says to Abraham, this is it. Circumcision. And so it became an important part of Jewish culture. It was so important that generations later, it almost got Moses killed. When Moses' sons were born, he didn't bother to have them circumcised. Maybe because he grew up in Pharaoh's house, so it's just not something that he was raised around. Maybe because he married a Midianite woman whose people didn't have the same rule. We don't know exactly why Moses didn't have his son circumcised. We just know that he didn't do it. It wasn't important to him. But to God, this was a very important, serious transgression. So serious, in fact, that in Exodus 4, God resolved to put Moses to death until Zipporah, Moses' wife, quickly performed the procedure. Moses was God's chosen servant, a prophet, and the only man in the whole Bible who's described as God's friend, but neglecting this seemingly trivial, seemingly insignificant detail almost brought the wrath of God crashing down on him. So it's more than just a tradition. It's more than just an idiosyncrasy in the culture. It is the sign that a new generation has become heirs to the promises of God, reminding them of that lopsided covenant made with their forefather Abraham, that they, just like Abraham before them, do not earn God's favor and blessing, but receive it as an act of God's kindness in their lives. So for the average baby boy born in a Hebrew family in the first century, this was common practice. This is just what everyone did on the eighth day of their baby boy's lives. But Mary and Joseph know that the baby boy that they are holding is different, not average in any way. Back in chapter 1, an angel arrived to tell Mary that she would carry the Son of God in her womb, the one that the Gospel writer John describes as the Word of God, who was with God in the beginning, who was God Himself, through whom and for whom all things were made. Jesus is not a fellow heir of this promise, He is the one who makes the promise. In the lopsided covenant between God and Abraham's descendants, Jesus is not on the same side that Abraham was on. He is the one who pledges blessing for the whole world. So eight-day-old Jesus here in Luke 2.21 is not becoming a member of the covenant community. He is identifying with his people. Like Hudson Taylor, who shed the life that he knew in order to draw near to the people of China. God's Son shed the honor and glory of heaven to become one of us. A fragile life, cradled in the arms of his mother. A child, like every other child born in the history of humanity, God became one of us. Without diminishing an ounce of his divinity, he became entirely human to identify with us so that as one of us, he could be our Savior. That's what Jesus' name points to. Luke tells us that after he was circumcised, circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. It's a reminder that everything that's happening here has been ordained by divine decree, and it's a clue to what that divine plan is working toward. In the Bible, names often reveal something about the person that they're attached to. Sometimes they describe that person's character, like Jacob, whose name sounds like the Hebrew word for cheater. It's a fitting name for one who would one day cheat his brother out of his birthright. Sometimes names describe the circumstances of someone's birth, like Isaac, whose name sounds like the Hebrew word for laughter, since his mother had laughed at the idea that she could even have a child in her old age. Other names are used to honor God, like Daniel, whose name is just the literal Hebrew sentence, God is my judge. In Jesus' case, it is all three. His name describes his character, the circumstances of his arrival in the world, and it honors God. The name Jesus is actually the Greek version of the Old Testament name Joshua. It was one of the more popular names among Jewish boys in the first century, Today, the most popular names are recorded and are published every year by the Social Security Administration, so we know for a fact that there are a bunch of Noahs and Jameses and Emmas and Olivias in nurseries across the country. In the first century, uh, there was no official list to consult, but if there had been, Joshua definitely would have been on it. It came to prominence. This name, Joshua, came to prominence centuries earlier when a man named Hosea demonstrated his confidence in God. Hosea was an Israelite who had been set free from slavery in Egypt. He saw God perform wonders and overwhelm Pharaoh. He saw the Red Sea part for him, for God's people to cross on dry ground. He heard God's promise that his people would arrive in their bountiful new home, so when, the, so, when the Israelites arrive at the border of that land, Hosea was eager to see it. So, he was one of 12 spies selected to go and wander throughout the land and report back to everyone. The report that Hosea and the other 11 spies brought back was discouraging because, as it turns out, the land that they were going to be given by God was full of fortified cities, powerful armies, and terrifying warriors. Ten of the spies said that Israel should just turn the other direction and run. But Hosea had confidence in God. He trusted that no matter how impossible it seemed, God would do what he said he would do. He would keep the promises that he had made to Israel's forefathers and he would bless his people. Hosea was so confident in God's faithfulness that Moses started calling him Joshua, a name that means our God saves. Over the generations that followed, lots and lots of parents named their baby boys Joshua in hopes that God would intervene in their lives to deliver them from some trouble. In the first century, when Jesus is born, that trouble was typically personified as Roman oppression. So, people named their sons Joshua with prayers that God would rescue them, that he would deliver them from their oppressors. One night, When Mary is at home in Nazareth, she's confronted by an angel and she learns that she is going to have a baby whose name is a promise. That child's name would be Joshua. Eventually translated into its Greek counterpart, Jesus, when these events were recorded in the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, our God saves. Even if it looks impossible, He saves, but not just from Roman oppression. The one born on Christmas Day would save his people from their sin and deliver them to the promised land of God's grace. And he would do this by identifying with us, becoming one of us, so that he could take our place. Born into the world, as we heard in the call to worship this morning, he took on the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. That's the very heart of the gospel that God's Son became one of us so that he could stand in the place of judgment that was our place. The whole gospel hangs on the fact that Jesus was born as one of us, lived as one of us, and was therefore able to suffer the wrath of God against sin, our sin, as one of us. It's a great exchange that Paul describes in the book of 2 Corinthians when he says that for our sake he made him who knew no sin at all to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. A perfect life traded for failed ones. A perfect righteousness counted as ours, while the guilt and shame of our sin was counted his. He identifies with us so that he can identify himself as the recipient of God's just answer to sin. In order for that salvation plan to work, Jesus needed to have a perfect, righteous human life to trade for ours. Perfect obedience to the law, free from all condemnation, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness. It's hard for us to imagine because perfection is such a foreign concept to us, but Jesus had to be. He had to be so that when he traded his life for ours, we could be counted righteous, perfectly righteous in His name, so that when God looks at you, He doesn't see your sin. He sees the perfections of His Son. He sees that flawless obedience to the law. If Jesus had arrived in the world as an adult, He would have been perfectly holy. There's no question, but He would not have had a perfectly holy life to trade for ours. Think of it this way. The fifth commandment In the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. I don't know about you, but when I think about my life, I know that I have failed to keep that commandment, at least not perfectly. I stand condemned by a righteous and holy judge for failing to honor him by honoring my parents. I cannot deny that. Even if I feel like I haven't done anything truly terrible, God's standard is perfection. So, in order for Jesus to to have a perfect righteousness that could be counted mine, a perfect obedience to all ten of the Ten Commandments, he needed to have parents, and he needed to honor them. He needed to be tempted and then to stand firm in the face of that temptation so that he could have a perfect life to trade for mine. He needed to be just, upright, honorable at all times, in order to deal with all the times that I have not been. He needed to keep every detail of the law free from any heavenly accusation so that in his name and by God's grace, I could be acquitted of all of heaven's accusations against me. And it begins right here in Luke two twenty one, when he fulfilled the law, the law that said, baby boys in God's kingdom will be circumcised on the eighth day. It wasn't for him. It was for you. He didn't need to receive the promise of God's blessing. He was the promise of God's blessing. The law perfectly kept so that his heavenly father would one day declare, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He has kept my law perfectly all so that in his name you and i could one hear this one day hear the same thing said about us because christ's perfect righteousness is counted ours on christmas jesus christ stepped into the world on a path that would lead him to the cross and the first place that that path led was right here to Luke 2:21 where he began to fulfill all the requirements of the law. The theologian and Protestant reformer Martin Bucer explains that Christ came into the world and made himself subject to the law. But Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law so that all who believe in him might be redeemed. The law requires perfect righteousness and holiness, but all those who believe in Christ are counted as holy through him. The difference that that makes in in our lives is simply enormous, and it confronts what for many of us was our first understanding of Christmas and remains our understanding of what it means to come before God. The idea that if you're good, you can avoid getting your name on the naughty list, and if you can manage to do that, then you'll get a pile of wonderful things, and if not, then you get a lump of coal. That is the mindset that we're tempted to bring before God, that we need to do, do, do in order to receive his blessing. That way of thinking, though, is a tremendous burden. It crushes us because it means chasing perfection that we can never attain. But Christmas says that God came to do what we couldn't, to live as the law demanded, so that we could have his perfection counted as ours, so that We can get out from under the burden of do, do, do for God and hear Christ say, done. The perfect life, flawless obedience, impeccable righteousness, accomplished already and counted ours by faith. The gospel says the way that we get off the naughty list is by grace alone. It is by being found in Christ and by rejoicing that we have been so loved by living in the lopsided covenant where the only part that we play is recipient of grace. Jesus was born to fulfill the law's demand and establish a new covenant, one of grace. Now, we become heirs of God's promise, not by signs like circumcision, but by faith in the atoning blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He identified with us to pour out his mercy for us. That is the wonder of Christmas. It's the reason we celebrate on December 25th and indeed every day of the year. May we treasure him more this Christmas season as we reflect on the extent of his love. Love that compelled God to become one of us so that as one of us, he could bear our guilt and fulfill the promise that our God saves Would you pray with me? Father God, as we consider these things this morning, we marvel at the humble love of your Son who willingly laid down his perfect life to ransom our sinful, rebellious, hard-hearted lives. We cannot fathom the heights from which he condescended, but we know all too well how far we've been lifted from shame and guilt. Now, where the law stood to condemn us, it testifies to the love of Christ. Where it reveals our unrighteousness, it also shines a light on His perfections and the grace that has been extended to us. This Christmas, help us to hold this hope close, to treasure it as the greatest gift that we will ever receive and to share it with those in our lives. We pray these things in the name of Christ, who is our Savior. Amen.